This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD network troubleshooting, the state of FreeBSD, and the 13 features that are coming. We look at OpenBSD's DHC Pleased, Beehive for Calamari's development. We have an article about EFS auto mounting and the EBS NVMe ID for you, some old Unix pictures, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 396, License to Thrill, recorded for the first day of April 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Oh, what a surprise. Where did Alan go again? Oh, he must just be lost somewhere. <laughs> yeah, probably. So uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for helping out as a co-host. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself for the people who have never heard about you. Oh, well, so <laughs> I, I'm not the I'm not the Welsh singer. Instead, I'm the the FreeBSD developer. Uh, long-time listeners of BSD now might have heard me talking to Alan in 2016 at FOSDEM, but Ooh, that that's been a, a while. time ago. Yeah, um, I, I work on uh, the, the FreeBSD network stack and. In my uh, in my normal life, I do research into into network protocols, which thankfully gives me some time to look at FreeBSD. Ah, interesting. So you're making things work smoothly or reliably and things like that. Ho hopefully, hopefully, Mostly. better and faster. Ah, always good. Yeah, to let the packets flow. The packets must flow. <laughs> cool. That's that's certainly interesting. Nice. And yeah, so people will hear you uh, throughout the episode and um, helping out here and there with. Uh, insights in the networking stack when <laughs> when it's time for that cool uh well we're starting with the headlines this week uh it's FreeBSD network troubleshooting and uh, this is from clara systems they uh keep writing articles and let people write them and so we have i mean we're not exclude they're not writing them exclusively for us but we like to cover them and this one is of course about networking and bringing up a network is interesting but once things go down and the troubleshooting starts. And so the article starts with, FreeBSD has a full set of debugging features, and the network stack is able to report a ton of information, so much that it can be hard to figure out what is relevant and what is not. There are a number of things we can mean when we say a network is performing well, and they don't have all, uh, or they don't have to align for a network to get to a good score for a particular application. The nature of the workload is an important determinant of what is considered good. Network performance is dominated by two components that exist in symbiosis, delay and bandwidth. So delay here is the amount of time it takes for traffic to traverse the network. Most commonly, we will talk about the round trip time or ping. You probably have used this. Um, so this measures the delay out and back to a remote host. Unless you're in a very special network, such as VSAT link, which is a, this is a satellite link, I reckon. Yeah, this is a like a VDSL link, but but using satellite. So it pretends to be a pretends to be more like a DSL link, but it isn't. Ah, cool. Okay, so you can assume that uh, out and back delays are the same, and that the one way delay is half of the RTT, the run trip time. I actually, but in reality, yeah, <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's really funny actually. So uh, I, I I happen to have written this article um, very nicely for for Clara. It's great. You should read it. Um, and I had a, I had a friend review it and he definitely told me off for this part because really in the internet, um, your, your latency is not, not symmetric at all. You get different paths, uh, you hit load balancers, you hit like aggregation nodes, like all, all the time. So your delay isn't symmetric, but in the end, you can just sort of pretend it is for most cases because that's all you can really measure with your tools. Yeah. Right. They don't really see which, uh, way it went back. And so, yeah, we take the best guess here. Okay, but yeah, it's definitely good to uh, keep in the back of your head. Um, so, yeah, so one path is faster than the other, and delay controls how responsive an application or protocol can be. We've all been there waiting for stuff to happen or to appear on the screen or on the network. Uh, the time between an action and the response to that action is referred to as the latency, and that's also a term you should know in networking. And we measure that delay in milliseconds. So that's important uh, background knowledge. 
And the network capacity is the network's ability to carry traffic over time. We normally use the term bandwidth when talking about the rates the network can send at. And in most cases, these two terms are interchangeable. If you ever deal with radio systems, it can be easy to get confused. Capacity governs the amount of information we can transfer in an amount of time. We use one second. And we typically talk about bandwidth in megabit per second. And for links, or for these links, and megabytes per second uh, for application measures. So don't mix megabits per second with megabytes per second. That's a big difference. Uh, the traffic a host uh, or application can process in a second is also called its throughput. So these are important network um, terms that you need to uh, you know, remember or refresh. And then it starts talking about uh, protocols because uh, hosts use many different protocols to communicate with each other over the uh, development of the internet and networks in general. And we layer these on top of each other because we can and we love to, I guess, um, to provide richer services, of course, to applications. That's what we keep saying to ourselves, right? Just one more stack. <laughs> but yeah, in general, that's how uh, the classic um, network stacks work. Uh, for performance, we're going to concern ourselves with the network characteristics that affect the lower level protocols that carry communication. FreeBSD in this uh, particular way or instance has a good view of the internals of these protocols and can use system tools to understand how well they are performing. Application layer protocols such as HTTP can be a big factor in network performance, but analysis and tuning are tightly coupled to the application and out of scope for this article. And uh, then there's a, a section about establishing a network baseline because the baseline is important uh, when you want to know, hey, has it ever been slow? Has it ever been fast? What is slow? What is fast compared to what? And that's why you have a baseline first and then can tell when you make changes or any kind of tuning, did it get better or worse than the baseline? And the easiest thing, as we mentioned, is the, the ping command, uh, or which is uh, using the ping tool. And that is uh, so common that most gamers will talk about their ping time rate rather than delay at all. And ping is uh, working by sending ICMP echo requests and waiting for a matching ICMP echo reply. And the time between those uh, is the round trip time. And that is being printed to your screen when you do ping-c, for example, 10 times in this case. And then at the uh, bottom or at the end of the, the, the ping, you get a little statistic how quickly it went or uh, min-max average statistics. Cool. So this is all uh, nice. A little further down. You can see other ways to measure your bandwidth, uh, like iperf3. You use that a lot, right? I, I really like iperf3. It's, uh, it's one of the, the better network tools that have been written. So uh, refresh my memory. This is, uh, it has a client and server part. Yeah, so, so it's, the, it's the third iperf, which you can get from the name. And importantly, uh, iperf2 has been used for a long time. Uh, it probably had like a 20-year history, and both are still used. iperf3 makes it easier to run. So... Uh, with iperf2, if you ran the server, which you need to run somewhere, um, you would have to run it per protocol. Whereas now iperf3 will run all of the servers. So it makes it easy to do SCTP, UDP, TCP tests. And it gives you a, a whole set of tools that make it easy to run um, uh, network capacity measurements or, or bandwidth measurements, and then limit them in certain ways and accelerate them in, in certain ways. And the, the really nice thing about iperf3 over iperf2 is that you can get all of this data as JSON. So it's really easy to push this into automated pipelines. Um, yeah, it's, oh. it's a great tool. Okay. And you get the statistics at the end or written to a JSON file. And oh, yeah. So that's important to know. Good stuff. And that's how you use uh, or when you make changes to the network stack and figure out did it get worse or better or it, any kind it, of. It's one way to look at. Um throughput for for a network uh when changing a network stack you might want to look at look at other components i've used it a lot for for satellite research so we can figure out what links are actually doing because the the throughput we can get is quite important the nice thing with iperf3 is you can tweak lots of uh lots of the defaults and so on weird networks like the satellite networks i do work with uh, you have to make buffers really big because they are uh the delay is obscenely large so the buffers need to be obscenely large uh, and mm. so you have to have to tweak these things up to get any sort of performance. Okay, so that's the specialty in these kinds of uplinks or links in general in the satellite space. Okay, interesting. And uh, do you, you have a couple examples in the article um, with uh, different use cases of iperf or different locations. And a little further down, 
there is a passive network performance information section using Netstat. That's what I used a lot in the past or still use. The nice thing about Netstat is <laughs> what I tell students always is Netstat-RN works on Unix uh, and as well as on Windows. That's the only command that is probably similar in the output. Uh, I, I, I didn't know I didn't know <laughs> that Windows had a Netstat. I don't, I don't know much about Windows. It, it does. It's... It, it looks windowish enough, but it still shows you the same information like the, the default route and the, the other routes that you have. I, I can't, the default gateway. I, I can't remember if Netstat has been a LibX OFI'd or not. Um, I think it might have been. Could have, yeah, very yeah. well. Uh, I, because, yeah, it's a good tool for that to so, just so show the statistics. Because of, because of all the counters that Netstat has, it's actually really helpful for... It's really helpful for testing network stack changes because you can see where errors are. And it's really helpful for figuring out if you've, when you've written uh, unit tests, like uh, like Christoph likes us to do, it's very helpful if you're trying to like stimulate a certain behavior. You can just see like uh, the fragments received counter go up by one. And you're like, hey, cool. My packet made it into the network stack. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it reached its destination. Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so Christoph did all the work um, uh, on the PF and the bridge uh, implementation of um, in FreeBSD and made it much faster. And so that's what he probably also used a lot to figure out um, the, the baseline and uh, the improvements. And uh, then there's sysstat, the dash ifstat, the interface statistics as another tool. If you ever, oh yeah, that's all. Yeah, if you're ever running something that doesn't have a, a progress bar, uh, launching sysstat with ifstat is really helpful if you if you're doing a transfer of a known size uh, it will zero the counters when it starts so if you're moving like 10 gigabytes over the network but uh, your scp you have no idea what it's actually doing because it's just listing all the files just open the, the sysstat ifstat and it'll it'll count up for you it's really convenient oh yes mm -hmm. yeah so it doesn't uh, confuse some uh, repeated um, measurements Oh yeah, that's that's a, a good tool to know. Sysstat in general is is very useful to know what your system is doing or in different ways like netstat or um, the the pigs, the what are the, the most CPU consuming processes, and especially networking uh, as you mentioned here. The there's a lot of statistics about the network stack that people usually don't look at, like completely duplicate is not what I'm typically looking at. But it's there if you need it, especially when you're getting errors or um, you drop packets or any kind of uh, errors appear in your uh, networking. And that's, yeah, a, a first go-to when you um, experience some of these. Uh, do you do any kind of uh, like graphical plotting, like uh, long-term measurements and plot these? Uh, so, so through my work, no, but I, I think almost all of these statistics you can get through syscontrol which means you can use the the Prometheus exporter and then you can feed this into something like Grafana and, and pr plot anything you want. Yeah, uh, because we have a lot of sysadmins usually that uh, want to have like uh, a, a monitoring system that patches into these system tools or the system tools export their, their statistics to it and then they can see what uh, long-term things have been happening uh, while they were on holiday or... <laughs> when something uh, was uh, going wrong in their network. So they have something to refer back to. Cool. And then the conclusion here is, oh, great quote. Benchmarks are hard to get right and network benchmarks are harder. So is it really that difficult or is it just a urban legend? <laughs> no, it's impossible. I don't know how anybody does any benchmark. This, <laughs> this, this is why uh, this is why the, the two tools I, I, I spoke about are tools that I, I, I'm very willing to trust what they tell me. Um, Ping is doing something very simple and it's very easy to understand what it's doing. And so when it tells you a latency, you do have a good idea the latency is accurate. And, uh, and iperf3 is, is a great tool because it has been hammered on by all these people for years to make sure it is accurate. Um, you just have to be careful when you do comparisons between iperf3s because uh, we, we had one issue where between Linux and FreeBSD, Linux was going a lot faster over our links and we couldn't figure out why. And it turned out that there was an update in iperf 3 to how it counted statistics and the mm. Linux one was older and so it was doing something wrong. And when we brought <laughs> the two in sync, it, everything was fine. Oh, okay. So it's also the, the measuring tool could be wrong. Okay. Yeah, it's really scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's good that people also work on the measuring tools and keep them updated to the modern times. Cool. So yeah. 
so definitely check out the whole article. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for writing this uh, so that we know how to uh, measure and troubleshoot um, or start troubleshooting at least some of these network problems. Uh, then we have the state of FreeBSD. This is over at the register. Do you want to read this one? Sure. Um, so, so this register article has some some interviews with uh, people, uh, project members from FreeBSD. It, it starts with the the amazing amazing headline: "License to Thrill." Ahead of version thirteen, the FreeBSD team talks about Linux and the completed toolchain project that changes everything. And so, this article covers uh, a discuss a discussion with uh, John Baldwin and, and Ed Mast. Uh, and they they are they're interviewed to talk about what's happening for 3BSD 13, which is happening very soon. Um, and so it, it lands here saying 3BSD 13 has just released reached release candidate one, and is scheduled to come out at the end of March. We hope. So uh, maybe soon. Yeah. <laughs> with, with key new features including a complete LLVM toolchain, faster networking, and improved ZFS file system. Uh, major new releases come every two years or so. 12 was pushed out in December 2018. 12.2 in October 2020. And, and they say that they spoke to the kernel developers, uh, John Baldwin and Ed Mast, um, one of whom is a, a committer and director of the project. Ed Mast, who is a FreeBSD committer and director of project development for the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, they, they continue to explain that, that BSD stands for Berkeley Software Distribution, which was really funny in the comments seeing people question that. Um, I can't remember <laughs> what the comment was. Berkeley sourceware distribution. Yeah, Berkeley there's Soft a bit Disco. of confusion there. Or <laughs> and so they 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 go on to say that uh, FreeBSD can trace its lineage back to to 1977, uh, with FreeBSD being an open source version originally released in late 1993. Uh, unlike Linux, it is not primarily licensed under the the GPL, which is copyleft, but under the more relaxed BSD license. Though we do have some GSD part BSD parts. Um, they go on to, to quote John saying part of the FreeBS part of FreeBSD's strength, part of what makes us unique is our license. A lot of people consume FreeBSD as a toolkit to build things like appliances. For many of those vendors, the BSD license is very important compared to the GPL license, particularly GPL v3. We never imported any v3 toolchains into our native toolchain. And so a, a big feature of this register piece is talking about the, the new toolchain we have. Um, and so the updated toolchain in 13 was the first thing that John Baldwin and Ed Mast pointed out. Uh, and when it comes to fresh, item, to fresh items in the release, the big deal is that a long-term project to migrate LLVM compiler is now complete. Um, I think it was complete with the, the execution of, of Spark 64. Oh, yes, the yeah. Final piece. There have been many uh, developer summits over the years that I attended um, where they talked about the toolchain and moving from... Uh, uh, GCC uh, tools and the toolchain uh, to LLVM or uh, more openly licensed uh, uh, tools. Yeah, and, and so they, they sort of summarize this by saying that the, the efforts on the toolchain started about 10 years ago, uh, and now we're finally with Clang and LLVM for, for, for everything. Um, you mentioned the tier two architectures like MIPS, which are still using GCC, but this is now using GCC, which lives, uh, lives out of tree. And so we've managed to managed to evict everything okay yeah that's that's a long time been making and a lot of uh, people were involved in that and they did all the the big work and the also catching up with the uh, architectures and the um the tool chains themselves like as they developed and improved they also needed to be integrated again into freebsd so that's a big work yeah i think an important quote here is uh it's a lot easier to do research with LLVM because that's what it's designed for. And I think we do see that where we're getting more and more cool features come through because the, the tool chain is uh, geared up to be integrated into other systems and uh, designed to be a backend for a lot of software stuff. Um, and so we're getting a lot more flexibility from this. Oh, yes. This is the, yeah, the result of all this work um, to be more flexible in the future and open uh, the, the operating system to more developers working with these and wanting to uh, run their software with that. And so that's the the overall goal of not just having, oh, there's this old GCC 4.2.1 compiler we need to get away from. That is the last one that was openly licensed uh, before it moved to uh, GPL3. And so now we're on a much more flexible um, and 
more yeah better for the FreeBSD project uh, licensed version. And also a lot of these changes that we made uh, with the integration were sent back to the LLVM or um, other LLD projects. And so that was a good collaboration between them, not just taking their software and integrating them, but also reporting back the issues that we found. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been a, been a two-way, two-way street for, for changes and, and making things better. Uh, the, the article goes on to, to highlight other changes that are new in 13. Um, and they mentioned there's been a lot of work on, on network performance, uh, especially from the, the FreeBSD Foundation funded work to improve the performance of, of the bridge interface, um, which we, we mentioned earlier. It's such a, such a stellar improvement. It's hard not to talk about all the time. <laughs> uh, and bridge has um, big outcomes for people running virtual machines or running big containerized workloads. Uh, and so it's great to see the performance improve there. And they also mentioned that the the PF firewall received a bunch of improvements funded by an ISP that uses FreeBSD. And the virtual networking layer has new functionality. Yeah. And then the, the final network one they point out is the uh, the addition of in-kernel TLS work. Uh, and the in-kernel TLS work is sort of key to a lot of Netflix's ability to do st- stupidly high uh, traffic rates out to, to everyone on the planet. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's what Netflix does with FreeBSD uh, as the software pushing these packets. And that's where uh, the work button was not also just specific for Netflix. They also uh, made it available for uh, general FreeBSD so that everyone can use that. And then maybe the, the final key feature for 13 is the the addition of the, the open ZFS file system. Uh, and, the, and the quote here is, FreeBSD has included ZFS in the base system for several years. But ZFS and its development has changed over time. Developer Mindshare has moved towards the ZFS on Linux tree, now called OpenZFS. In 13, the ZFS implementation has been switched to the new OpenZFS tree. This means we have some features that weren't present in the last implementation. We're now connected to the right upstream pipeline. And I think we're going to see lots of um, bleeding edge changes now come through. And we'll definitely have parity because the development is now happening in one place with the with the tests being run on all the supported platforms. Yeah, exactly. And so that's also a big win for the people. When 13 comes out, they can try out this software. It's uh, ready and uh, it's been a long time also waiting for it. Alan and I have been talking a lot about this. Alan, even more than I did, um, what's coming and what cool things ZFS will provide. And it also makes, as you mentioned, uh, easier to update it in the future because we're using the same groundwork and making the... Uh, changes in concert with the other uh, upstream users of uh, OpenZFS. Uh, there's also smaller sections about security and development, which are also interesting to read, but we uh, leave you to it. And so it's a, definitely a great article, and the interview, I think, was uh, well-received, and uh, everyone is probably now waiting even more for uh, 13 to come out. It's only unlucky for some. <laughs> yeah, the, the people who have to, you know, grind the gears to uh, make it work. And there's some final testing going on as we record this um, to figure out some of the things they discovered. Um, but then uh, the longer we wait, the better the release will be. All right, now it's time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we found a, another article or one that mentions DHC Pleased, the DHCP client daemon uh, over at the OpenBSD Journal. Uh, that, yeah, you I would did see not th- read it like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> DHC Pleased, this is a, a name you would only find uh, coming from the OpenBSD uh, project. Uh, so um, they, they mentioned a commit from Florian Opser uh, that has imported DHC Pleased. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, the DHCP daemon to acquire IPv4 address leases from servers plus DHCP please cuddle or control if the name isn't long enough already. A utility con- to control that daemon. And so this is now in the uh, tree and the description reads that DHC pleased uh, follows the well-known three process design for all their privilege separation daemons. It uses pledge and unveil to restrict access further in particular, the engine process responsible for parsing of untrusted data is pledged standard I.O. Cannot access the outside world nor the file system at all. So it's just doing what it's supposed to do, the DHCP part. And like uh, SLAACD uh, for IPv6, it will be always running and acquire addresses for all interfaces with the autoconf4 flag set. Uh, this flag can be set by 
uh, I've config dollar interface name uh, inet auto config or by adding inet auto config to etc hostname.if and existing DHCP line should be removed of course so that doesn't get confused and so yeah people in OpenBSD now have a new and more secure uh, if that's a word uh, DHCP client I, I cool. think it's called Slack D, but I, I, I Slack D? I'm not going to complete. I'm not going to click. Oh yes, yeah. IPv6. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think this is a, a great step forward um, for for process isolation. And when when OpenBSD tore out of the Slack uh, the 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 router advertisement parsing stuff from the kernel, they did really lower their attack space. And so it's good to see more tools written this way. Uh, and it, it's really nice to see that they are making things more consistent over time by making everything just a bit better and, and more secure. And it definitely lowers a bit of the attack surface for any machine because DHCP is a scary one if, you, if someone else could do it wrong. And so it's, it's great to see this land. Yeah, and I think maybe someone will port this to the other BSDs or the other Unixes even. So this could be a benefit for them as well. Cool, so that's nice. And what else do we have? Ah, yes, BI for Calamari's development. That's that sounds interesting. Um, uh, yeah, so this is a this is an introduction to using Beehive on on FreeBSD from a FreeBSD developer Adrian De Groot, I think. Oh yes, ah, I remember him. Yeah. Um, and so he he is talking about calamaris, which I had to look up to find out what it was, and it is in the note, and I will read the name for what it is. Uh, it is a, so calamaris is a free and open source, independent and distro agnostic system installer for Linux distributions. And so it seems like the, the perfect thing to run in virtual machines because you want to test installs of, of Linux, distribu Linux distributions over and over again. Yeah. And so Adrian here talks through how to, how to run Beehive uh, and then how to run Linux live ISOs um, inside Beehive. And he, he starts by saying that the Beehive man page is, is very extensive and there's a, a great FreeBSD handbook chapter on it. And I concur, it is a great chapter. Uh, I, I go back to it all the time. Uh, instead, he spent some time messing around with configuration management tools such as Chives, which is C-Hives, oh. like, uh, VM Beehive, and he looked at CBSD. Uh, but these tools mostly concealed away what, the, what, what was happening for Beehive and it didn't advance his goal of getting there. And instead, the, the most valuable hint came to him via Twitter, uh, which is a bit sad, actually. Um, so if anyone wants to update our documentation so they get a clear review, there's a lovely tweet here in this article for, for you to look at. Uh, he then goes on to talk about what he was doing wrong in his setup. And, and part of the issue was that UEFI was running very, very slowly. And I think through maybe complaining on Twitter, uh, Rebecca Cran pointed out the issue and has since updated the EFI firmware, which makes it much easier to boot the virtual machines. Uh, and he then goes on to some of the other issues he hit um, with, with testing. And so he says, through dumb luck, prompted me to try VNC from my Slimbook laptop running OpenSUSE Tumbleweed to my FreeBSD server after a reboot of that server. And it worked. We're running VNC Viewer. Uh, and so the way that Beehive gives you graphics is it, it pops up a, a VNC server that you need to connect to. He said that running VNC Viewer locally on the machine the night before gave him garbled uh, UEFI boot screen. Uh, and there seems to be some issue of getting the, the right VNC client speaking to the right VNC server. And he goes oh. on to talk through how he did the install of the packages to, to drive Beehive. And so while Beehive itself is part of the base system, additional firmware for VMs needs to be installed, in particular the UFI firmware, and, and maybe Grub uh, for certain boots. And so he shows you how to install uh, the Beehive firmware packages and the UEFI packages. And because there's no UI other than a, a terminal UI and maybe a serial console, he also recommends installing Tiger VNC Viewer so you can look at what's going on. He then has a, a lovely diagram with how to, to network the Beehive host up uh, and connect it to your local interface. And here he uses a, a bridge, which is getting much faster, thanks to, to Christoph. Mm. Can't mention it enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he, and he shows you all the commands you need to um, to configure tap interfaces and the bridge one-off. And he shows you the the magic sysctl, which is a net link tap up on open, which if you forget it, 
nothing will work and you won't know why. So it's always good to see that highlighted. This is in the handbook too, so it's just it's just a difficult debugging one rather than a, a real thorn. And he talks about how uh, convenient it is to use Beehive with ZFS datasets as, as backing, which is also in the handbook. And then finally, he goes on to, to tear down exactly what goes into a, a Beehive command line, um, showing you certain flags to pass through, such as where to get ACPI tables and what to do on a, a halt and a pause, uh, and then the number of cores, the amount of memory, and where to configure where you get the, the UEFI ROM image and to get the uh, to direct the output. And then he shows connecting up uh, the PCI bus, tap interfaces, and then storage. And then he finally summarizes all of that together. Oh, yeah. That's a good overview article for the people who are new to Beehive. And uh, yeah, very good. And he, and he actually includes at the end uh, a section on VNC client testing. And he oh, tested... yes. There's plenty of clients in the uh, in, in ports and packages, but they're not all created equal in terms of usability and other things. <laughs> yeah, he, he seems to have found 19 VNC clients uh, and, and tested uh, six of them. And he has a nice little table showing uh, if it will handle the, the CD image, the boot, uh, and running. And it has some, some extra notes there. I hadn't heard of most of these. I, I think I've only ever used Tiger VNC Viewer and uh, yeah, that, that's the only one that's ever worked for me. You you, you picked the right one. So I used yeah, Remina for, sure. for a while uh, for connecting to uh, Windows servers running um, R RDP. Uh, that worked well, but apparently VNC is not working too well, at least not with this, uh, with Beehive. Uh, okay, so I will probably switch to Tiger VNC as well. Uh, there's another one, SS VNC, also seems to be good comparing comparing it with the others. So yeah, if you're looking for an, a new client or one to start with, that's what you would probably pick. And yeah, this is definitely a good start and people can use the command lines provided to get started in their own uh, little beehives. Yeah, and I think this is a, a great introduction to, to doing beehive and showing you a bit of the internals. Um, and it shows, and there's some screenshots at the end that show graphics working, which we, we wouldn't necessarily have in the handbook, which is is great to see because Beehive is, is very happy running a, a graphical desktop. I've run Windows on Beehive without issues. And so it's, it's good to see an article that, that covers such a good introduction. And so maybe one day we will have the, um, you know, the Beehive pass-through, the GPU pass-through into the virtual machine so that people can use it for playing games. There have been some uh, reports that it seems to work, but not for all of them, uh, but it's just, bit of uh, work and depends probably also on the GPU as well. But yeah, Beehive is under active development still and people keep um, adding features to it. Uh, speaking about features, uh, we have another article for you here. Some new FreeBSD on EC2 features, EFS AutoMount and EBS NVMe ID uh, from Colin Percival, who's doing a lot of work uh, on uh, EC2 and FreeBSD. Bam. Mostly because he's using it a lot for his um, Tars network, which we'll get into, uh, but also, you know, in general to uh, make FreeBSD in the cloud, especially AWS, a bit better. And Colin writes, as my regular readers will be aware, I've been working on and gradually improving FreeBSD EC2 for many years. Yeah, and that's what uh, we were thankful for. Recently, I've added two new features, uh, he writes, which are A, available in the weekly head and 12 stable snapshots and will appear in releases starting from 12.2 release. The first of these is auto-mounting Amazon Elastic File System, or EFS. Uh, for those you, of you not familiar with it, Amazon EFS is essentially NFS as a service. It provides a POSIX file system with scalable performance replicated across availability zones. And to use that auto-mounting, you just specify it in the auto-mounter configuration and enable the auto-mounter. Uh, this is etc auto underscore master. You just uh, put a line in there, slash EFS, uh, with the parameter EFS, and then start uh, autofs enable in your uh, etcrc.conf, sysrc, for example. Then you either reboot, or if you want to keep the machine uh, <laughs> the machine's uptime, uh, you restart the required services, auto-mount D, auto-unmount D, and auto-mount. So all of these need to be started or restarted if they are already running. Now that uh, you have done this, any access to the path slash EFS slash FSID uh, with the 
with a number of uh, Amazon's choosing, will automatically and transparently mount that file system. Uh, this feature is long overdue, he writes. He had intended to add it three years ago after Rick Macklem, and uh, he got FreeBSD's NFS code working with Amazon's EFS, and really just comes down to a single script, which uh, implements the EFS auto mount map. So this is etc auto fs slash special underscore EFS. Ah. So that said, overdue or not, trivial or not, uh, he thinks this will be a useful feature. The second now, the second feature he has added or made available is the EBM, well, not slowly, EBS and BME dash ID and the new dev uh, AWS slash disk tree. Ah, yes, this is for the NVMe devices they export now. Users of Amazon Linux may be familiar with it. This is a utility which prints information about the disks attached to EC2, Nitro instance, where they are exposed to uh, or as NVMe devices. In particular there, uh, the EBS NVMe tool, kind of a tongue twister here, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, that allows you to see the EBS volume ID or EBS volumes and the Linux device name, which was specified when the volume was attached, which is not particularly meaningful on FreeBSD, but theoretically knowing that slash dev NDA1 was attached uh, via the EC2 API as dev SDH might be useful. And so this way you have a way to get to that disk and mount it in your FreeBSD instance. Cool, that's definitely good work and uh, good to have. So thank you, Colin, for that. So he hopes these features prove useful to FreeBSD users. Uh, if you'd like to support his continued work on FreeBSD EC2 platform, uh, he does this basically out of the goodness of his own heart and being a user of uh, FreeBSD and uh, AWS, he needs those, but he uh, also has to do other work. And so help is wanted. Or you can support his uh, work on this to um, by giving a contribution to, pay to his Patreon. He has a link there uh, in this blog post that we link from the show notes. Uh, because it's much easier to justify taking time away from his day job when it feels like people appreciate his work with a small donation and that could um, become a bigger sum that he can now spend on taking some time off and just doing uh, AWS work. Cool. So thank you, Colin, again for that work. And we have some uh, found some old Usenix pictures from Nicebox list. So these are, uh, so the people who don't know, nice. Uh, nice bug. Yeah. <laughs> nice bug is the NYC user, uh, BSD user group. And Usenix is a conference that's been running for oh, many years. I'm not sure if they're still doing these, uh, but they have been around since the early days of Unix. And this seems to be some very uh, old pictures from those conference days. I, I think if you, uh, if you knew any of these people, this would be very interesting. Um in the same way that uh, when Olivier takes pictures at BSD conferences, it's really fascinating to see your uh, your, your your fellow contributors all sat in a room. But in, uh, yes. in 10 years, you're just not going to know who any of these people are. <laughs> exactly. He he now provides uh, tags to, to names if people, uh, well, if he knows the people. Um, but yeah, they make a good uh, job of having these pictures available. And it could very well be that you have been with someone at a conference, but you never talked to each other because there were so many other people. And you just passed each other on the hallway and never, you were at the same conference, but never spoke. And so this way you have a way, oh, that person was there as well. I totally missed him or her. I, I think oh, there's the a... URLs are broken though, because the... Are they? Uh, yeah. So when I click for the picture of uh, Eric Allman, who I, I definitely would recognize, um, I, I instead get the random gallery. So maybe there's something they've changed about this to make it harder to, to find people. Oh, yes, uh, that could very well be. Maybe they uh, fixed that. I was just going to the GNN Young and Harry one uh, <laughs> because I, I know George, but not from that age. Um, so that is certainly interesting. Yeah, especially, I mean, if I would look back at the conference pictures from <laughs> when I was younger, um, then I would certainly say, this is not me. That guy uh, has hair. <laughs> interesting. So I, I don't get I don't get GNN at all. I don't get any of the people. I just get the random the random name. Oh random yes, now I get it. I, if you click it, if you click it again, then it's another set of people. Oh, that's difficult then to pinpoint people to a certain picture. 
Okay, but uh, GNN has been around long enough to be in those, and as well as Eric Allman, and I guess we can also catch Kurt McCusick in those. Uh, he's not listed in the in the uh, listing to the mailing or the mailing list post, but he's probably one of the many usual suspects in there. Cool, interesting. So if you have been around uh, for that long time, then you will probably reminisce this old time and remember some of the good times you had there. Who knows? Oh, and Paul Vixie is also in there. In one of those, yeah. <laughs> cool. So yeah, that's uh, Unix history uh, in a different way. And maybe in 50 years, someone else looks at BSD can pictures from us and asks, uh, who's this guy with the bald head? <laughs> Which which one will that be? Well, yeah, or like from the many. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's why we, it's good to have a uh, little name tags uh, so that people know who people were way back when. Okay, so let's go into our Beastie Bits this week because you provided two interesting links for people. Uh, the first one is the... That's the links wrong. Wait, is this 2020 Euro Beastie Con? Oh, yes, because they couldn't do the 2021. Yeah, they moved to the 2021. So last year they couldn't use uh, or couldn't do EuroBSDCon 2020 because everyone knows. Um, but they're starting or trying in 2021. And yeah, it's EuroBSDCon, as you have uh, probably known us talk about for a couple of episodes in earlier years that we have always been uh, going there. And we had always a great time because it's always in a different uh, country and there's always cool talks there about BSDs. And so last year, of course, they couldn't do it in Vienna, Austria. But again, they're trying it this year, September 16th to 19th in Vienna. And um, they're looking for calls. So the call for papers uh, should be out by now or has started by the time you listen to this. And they are uh, looking for talks um, in the BSD space, of course. Uh, do we know any more, any more specifics? Yeah, so the, the call of papers is running to the, the 26th of May. Uh, and I imagine they're they're looking for their, their normal uh, range of talks covering the, the BSDs and any and all BSD, probably operating systems concepts. And they're, they're looking for talks from users and administrators and developers. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do any tutorial format this year. Um, and maybe the important line from the from the page here is the conference is scheduled to take place the September 16th to 19th, 2021 in Vienna, Austria, or as an all online event if, if COVID-19 developments dictate. And so I think they're going into this deliberately being flexible about um, about where things will land. And so uh, I, I imagine that they will be reasonably accommodating for, for what is actually practical if the conference goes ahead. And if not, it will be online. And maybe a little bit like how uh, BSD Can was last year. Right. But every conference, no matter if in person or online, will need talks. And that's why they put out the call for papers. So if you do something interesting with BSD, also in the sysadmin space, doesn't have to be kernel or userland, uh, send something. Chances are you will be speaking at EuroBSDCon 2021. And, and as a developer, some of the, the best sessions that happen are the, the sessions actually from users and sometimes even small users because... Um, you you learn uh, the peculiarities of people's setups, and they tend people when they start speaking, they tend to tell you about the pain points, and that gives you a nice to do list of things to tidy up. Um, oh yes, so it's always exactly. good to have talks from users. So even if you feel like maybe what you do is not super technical, uh, you will find an audience at EuroBSDCon, and they will either uh, be supportive or commiserate you, just depending on how severe your problems are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have uh, a good chance of finding like-minded people. Yeah, definitely good for the developers to hear from how people use their software, right? That they use and have written uh, over many hours uh, sometimes. And the other conference, uh, that's where you are even more involved. Yeah, so the, the other conference is um, an event that, that me and a, a friend ran last year. Uh, and so... Every year annually, the, the local hackerspace in, in Aberdeen in Scotland goes camping. Uh, and last year, we very suddenly found out that we couldn't go camping. Um, <laughs> the event we have when we called go camping is called Campground, which is C-A-M-P-G-N-D. So like an electrical ground. Mm -hmm. um, nice. 
But the virtual event, you know, we've been grounded and we're stuck inside, so it's camp grounded. So uh, any submissions of typos will be ignored for that one. Uh, I got many <laughs> last year, uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna host this um, virtual event uh, over two and a half days. So the Friday evening, uh, Saturday all day, and then a Sunday morning, the 28th, 29th, and 30th of May, 2021. Um, and it will be from wherever you happen to be. And what we tried to do is replicate what would happen at a camping festival, but from our homes. And so the Friday session will be um, a nice introduction. We'll pitch tents, we'll show up, we'll filter in and talk, and then we'll have a, a DJ arranged in the evening. And then through the, the Saturday and Sunday, we'll replicate what we do. And so last year we had uh, somebody live stream making breakfast for an hour. And then we led into our, our, technical, our technical content. Uh, the technical content we're looking for uh, is, could be in the form of talks, uh, walkthroughs and, or, or music. And, and we're really looking for things that people are interested in. And we have the idea that if you are enthusiastic about something, then you'll probably, it'll probably be the same case that we're enthusiastic too. And uh, examples of talks last year, uh, I managed to trick Christoph into talking about uh, testing um, f firewalls and testing network stacks. Uh, we also had talks about new security tools that have been developed um, and systems for passing messages around on uh, hostile networks um, through to uh, an amazing talk about reverse engineering a uh, uh, radio tracking system for secure core vehicles in the, in the 80s. And I think we finished with somebody talking about how to uh, how nuclear reactors work. And so there's a whole range of stuff here. Um, this is probably a slightly less technical audience than you would expect for a BSD conference, but we'd love to have BSD talks here because the, the best thing in the world is to expose people that uh, don't necessarily know about BSD to BSD so they can they can come and come and come and join the nicer side of the world. Uh, and so hopefully hopefully people will submit things. Uh, the CFP is running until the 15th of April. And so you should have about two weeks from when this goes live to come up with an idea and write it down. And we're looking for quite short talks. So they're only 25 minutes. So it's not an hour long session to film. Phil, and we're, we're very friendly people. Oh, great. Yeah, so definitely send in a talk. Chances are you will be at that conference. And yeah, of course, you can put up a tent in your living room and participate that way. Uh, <laughs> but that's up to you. So that's uh, covering our Beastie Bits this week. Um and we should mention our sponsor for this week before we go into our last uh, bits of this episode. So sponsor of this week is Tarsnap, which gives you the proper backups for your all computing needs. So if you ever had a backup or need to restore a backup more, more like, then you will be happy to have a proper one because chances are if you store your backups in the clouds, someone else might have gotten back at your data and your data could have been all the important information that you always wanted to keep safe but with tarsnap that data is encrypted and it's encrypted before it leaves your machine so tarsnap takes your data there's a bit of a calculation of how much uh, redundancies are in there and uh, does compression and encodes those blocks so the data after it has been through all of these uh, stages is a lot smaller and then it's encrypted with your local key that never leaves your system and you should never pass out to anyone else. And then that encrypted backup is stored into Amazon's AWS cloud uh, along with other data that might sit there, but no one else on there can make heads and tails of it because it's all encrypted, it's gibberish, and only the people, aka you, is uh, able to decrypt that by pulling it down again if you need the backup. And then once you have the key, or if you still hold the key, then you can unencrypt your data and get your files back. Tarsnap is fairly easy to use because when you know tar, then you can use Tarsnap. And the pricing is very competitive because with a $10 bill that I charged in January, I can probably go throughout the rest of this year and the, uh, probably half of next year, depends on my data use. But it's very, very uh, nice and easy to use. So you should definitely check out Tarsnap and make use of it. Start making backups today. You might never know when you need them. Okay, so this would normally be our feedback and questions sections, but we didn't get too much uh, in the last couple of weeks. So this is a very empty section now, uh, unless we have someone else to fill it in. So send us more feedback. Could be any kind of questions you've encountered with your Unix, your BSD, anything that is out of the ordinary that you always wanted to ask us, and we might be able to help you with. 
And so send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Otherwise, this will be a very boring and long-winded section of me talking to you and lecturing you about sending us more questions and content. So this is um, not going to happen then. Okay, but here we fill it with something else because we got something from the desk of Michael W. Lucas. Uh, do you want to read this part? Of course. Okay. So we have a, a new release, only footnotes. Michael says, I've lost count of the number of people who have told me they purchased my books only for the footnotes. That's okay. I don't care why people buy my books, only that they buy them. Nevertheless, I am a businessman living under capitalism and feel compelled to respond to my market. Allow me to present my latest release, Only Footnotes, a handsome hardcover-only compilation of decades of footnotes from the back cover. Only footnotes, because that's why you read books. Academics hate footnotes, but Michael W. Lucas loves them. What he does with them wouldn't pass academic muster, but that doesn't mean the reader should skip them. The footnotes are the best part. Why not read only the footnotes and skip all that other junk? After literal minutes of effort, Only Footnotes collects every single footnote from all Lucas books to date. Star. Recycle those cumbersome treaties stuffed with irrelevant facts. No more flipping through pages and pages of actual technical knowledge looking for the offhand movie reference or half-formed joke. This slender, elegant volume contains everything the man ever passed off, his dubious mal passed off as his dubious malformed wisdom. Smart books have footnotes. Smarter books are only footnotes. Uh, and the little star was plus additional annotations from the author because sometimes even a footnote needs a footnote. Oh, and then, right. And does this mean the only footnotes announcement had a footnote? Uh, it seems like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is coming from Michael W. Lucas and you can probably uh, find more information about it on his website. Uh, it also tells us, or he told us, that it has interior illustrations by OpenBSD's uh, Akushibe. Uh, this distinguished tome would make fine inspirational reading for a system administrator, network engineer, or anyone sentenced to a life of uh, information technology. Available at uh, all the fine bookstores and many mediocre ones. Or his own personal page, I'm uh, re reckoning. You can tell which one of the two <laughs> it is. Um, so definitely, yeah, check it out. That's what we got fresh from Michael W. Lucas. And so we are giving it to you so that you know uh, it from us first. And I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, any last words from you, Tom? Not for Then me. I uh, am happy to tell you that it was a wonderful episode doing it with you. Uh, thank you for helping out. And we will probably hear more from you uh, in the future, one way or the other. Thanks for having me on. Sure. And Alan will be back in the future, of course. He's still around, uh, just a bit busy here and there. But that's uh, keeping the show interesting. You never know who's going to be uh, hosting this every other week. <laughs>